what's up y'all it's zach with living corporate and you know what we're doing every single week every single week like clock mm-hmm. work we out here <laughs> dropping air horn level content for y'all you know what i'm saying and who are y'all black and brown people at work and who else are y'all not black and brown people at work but who want to understand how black and brown people mm-hmm. move at work and how you can perhaps be a better ally to those black and brown people. So shout out to y'all. Shout out to our first and last time listeners. Shout out to our educators. Shout out to everybody who just, you know, comes in, slides in. Shout out to the people who give us five star reviews. You know, it's crazy because we have, you know, we have thousands of downloads a month. Like, 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 quite frankly, like over over 13,000 downloads a month. And yet we we only got like a few hundred, you know, more less than less than a hundred and less than 200 reviews on, on iTunes. So shout out to the people who give us reviews. We're going to have to cre- create some type of programmer and send them to get y'all give us some of these five star reviews. I mean, they really help us. I recognize and I appreciate y'all giving us uh, the downloads. We need the reviews, too. Anyway, I'm on a whole tangent. Uh, the point is, um, you know, we have real talk in the corporate world. We do that by having uh, executives, uh, entrepreneurs influencers creatives thought leaders um activists you know what i'm saying public servants civic leaders educators professors uh, musicians pretty much anybody who is passionate about centering underrepresented voices at work we have them on the show okay so y'all have seen that we've had some big big names and this week is no different okay because we have britney harris on the show britney j harris is the vice president <laughs> of learning and innovation at the winners group in her role, Brittany is responsible for curating and facilitating learning experiences that shift perspectives, change hearts, and empower action in service of equity, justice, and inclusion. You see that equity, justice, and inclusion. You don't even have diversity in this title because they 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 out here working. You know what I'm saying? Brittany supports nonprofit and for-profit organizations in designing high-impact learning and education programs that focus on competency building around diversity, equity, and inclusion, and cultural competence, and meeting people where they're where they are in their journey. Prior to joining the Winners Group, Brittany held a human resources, diversity management, affirmative action, compliance, and consulting roles in Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Maryland, and Tampa Bay, Florida. A graduate of Howard University, Brittany holds an undergraduate degree in broadcast journalism. She's also received her master's in human resources management with a concentration on diversity and inclusion management from Georgetown University. Brittany is a certified, say it again, certified administrator of intercultural development inventory or IDI. That's trademark. That's registered. OK, so y'all can't be out here. Uh, stealing that. Brittany currently serves on a curriculum advisory board for Baltimore City Public Schools Be More Me initiative and has previously served on boards for the Florida Diversity Council, Women in Cable Telecommunications Florida, the Pinellas County Urban League Young Professionals, and the Greater Baltimore Leadership Association. Do you feel the energy on this day? <laughs> Brittany, welcome uh, to the show. I'm happy to be here. What's up? <laughs> I just had to put a little mambo sauce on the on the on the intro real quick. You know what I mean? Just a little something. something. Thank you so much for being on the on the platform. Um, of course, I will talk about the winners a little bit later. But I just want to shout out to you. I love your profile. Um, I'm appreciative. No, no doubt, no doubt. Let, let's just get to it now. Look, a known headline today is that organizations are spending low end eight billion dollars a year on mm. diversity and inclusion training. Would you say? that diversity inclusion training has been successful to date so so that's um that's 
so loaded. First of all, I'm going to be honest. Like, I cringe when I hear the word training, um, especially in the context of um, diversity and inclusion, mainly because it does, and perhaps rightfully so, have a bad rap. The short answer is um, yes and no. And so I prefer, um, especially when addressing the no part, to use education and learning as the framework. Um, so just a little context for the for the, the folks who are listening, like, like majority of my work really is around education and learning. Um, and so to, to, to some extent, um, you know, we in business because the winners group who hate, by the way, is owned by a black woman is because we stand behind the work that we do. And so we strive, right, um, to ensure that like we're creating spaces where transformation, you know, can happen. I will say more broadly, because training, right, is this sort of like one-off approach, um, a lot of organizations um, are not necessarily positioning training as part of a much broader systemic shift or like institutional transformation. Um, that's why it's not, you know, one would say it's not working, right? Um, a lot of times it is sort of uh, positioned as, you know, keynotes. And, I, and I'll be honest, we have, we have clients or organizations come to us all the time just kind of wanting a quick fix, right, um, for purposes of, you know, what, what is this, for Black History Month or being part of some sort of advocacy organization or, you know, wanting to, um, you know, we, we got some employee resource groups and so we want to make sure they feel like, you know, heard. And so um, because there hasn't been as much as a emphasis on, you know what, education or capacity building is going to be part of a much broader um, uh, effort in shifting the culture and institutional change, no. Um, diversity training hasn't worked, right? And um, so Pamela uh, Pamela Newkirk actually put out a book um, that I'm reading, and, and she pretty much, with data, backs up the fact that, hey, and as much as this is a big, has become a really big industry, we have not seen shifts um, at the sort of cultural and institutional level, education, corporate America, so arts and entertainment. Um, it's really just an industry that has thrived because it makes people feel good. Um, and that has a lot to do with just like, I mean, we'll get, we'll, we'll, we'll get into kind of my, um, um, thoughts on how just the industry, I guess, since it's an industry has evolved over the years. Um, but, um, short answer, yes and no, it can work. Um, it has not. Um, and I think that is indicative of us, um, perhaps even losing sight on what the end goal or the main goal of this work is even supposed to be. Um, well, well, so then, so my follow-up question then, you know, when you say it hasn't been working today, so from your strategic framework, what are some of the key performance indicators of an effective uh, learning experience or materials for yeah. for diversity and inclusion? Yeah. So one thing that I think um, we've missed the mark on, and so as I mentioned, education and training is really something that's at the interpersonal level, Right. But equity work is like not solely at the interpersonal um, level. And so we really position our work um, or our education and learning um, around, you know, taking one, a developmental approach. And so we're not necessarily training people. We're building capacity, right? We're actually skill building. Um, Mary Frances, um, the way that she has positioned, by the way, folks, that's our, our president and founder, has positioned education and learning for us is, um, we are um, not just going in and um, engaging folks who want a quick fix. 
we actually take approaches that are sort of a developmental and module-based, right? And so long-term. And so we're going in, assessing, understanding where the organization is. We leverage tools, right? So we leverage tools to actually measure cultural competence, engage individual and organizational readiness. Um, and that's how we frame our experiences. And so we're not just going in, no shade to the folks who love the flavor of the month, unconscious bias, but we're not We're not going in and starting with unconscious bias just because everybody likes to it down, right? Um, we're really focusing on getting folks to understand themselves as, you know, cultural beings, um, which is important. There was a study out a couple months ago that showed that, like, white people in general don't see themselves as cultural beings, like 75% of white people don't even like identify with their racial identity, right? That's not right. a bias thing, right? Like that's, that's, not, that's, you know, that's not, you can't sort of address that um, dynamic by focusing on unconscious bias only, right? And so a lot of times we're developing experiences and modules that focus on the cultural self, right? Understanding identity, um, understanding dominant and subordinated group memberships. And so getting into conversations around power and privilege, which is something that corporate environments have strayed away from, right? And so like the the silent P in DNI work has been, you know, power and privilege. And um, we've had clients who pretty much said, no, we don't want to bring that up. I don't think you can have conversations without calling out the fact that a power dynamic is at play. We can talk about cultural competence and implicit bias all day but if we're not adding an overlay of you know some biases are more harmful than others and some biases have more harmful implications than others um then the work is for not right so and let's so, keep going yeah and so a lot of times we're going in getting folks thinking about what it means to be cultural beings and, and a lot of times our audiences are majority white leaders right male um, getting them to understand themselves as cultural beings, moving into work around understanding um, uh, their cultural others and skill building around empathy and like differentiating and discerning cultural patterns. So for example, um, we get folks thinking about sort of, okay, where do our dominant sort of cultural norms within the organization come from? Like it's not by happenstance or by chance that uh, we value direct communication styles or that we value direct communication styles in some over others. Like what is behind that cultural dynamic? The notion of like individualism, right? Like that is a yeah. cultural norm that didn't come out of nowhere. It's actually like a construct of whiteness, right? And so actually being able to like name um, where these norms, patterns come from that essentially build a lot of these cultures, right? Meritocracy, where does that come? You know, it, 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 like all of these things come from somewhere and it's and it's cultural, but if, if people don't even see themselves as cultural beings and understand where their worldview come from, comes from, not their biases, but like their actual worldviews that end up manifesting as behaviors and policies and structures and, and values, um, they can't begin to act, right? And so a lot of times after we have um, framed learning around cultural self and other understanding and cultural patterns, we get into, okay, where is your sphere of influence and how can you begin to disrupt um, perpetual exclusion based on your role, right? And so if you're a talent acquisition leader, what does this look like in your sort of sphere of influence as it relates to talent systems, right? If you are um, a um, leader who is um, essentially, you know, charged with how values those espoused play out on your team, 
how are you enacting that in how you mentor and how you coach and who you um, are, what is the word they like to use now? Um, sponsor, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, and those, <laughs> the word they like to use, yeah, go figure. <laughs> you know, there's so much, you know, y'all, I love my job. I'm also very cynical of this work because I love it so much. So y'all, y'all will hear it in my voice, but it's not because I don't love my job. It's because I know that, or my job with this worker industry is because I know that we, there is still um, so much more that we can be doing. Um, and so that's if, if there is an undertone of cynicism, that's where it comes from. Well, no, right? I mean, well, you're preaching to the choir, right? <laughs> I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about about the silent P um, of power, because when I when I think about it and I think about even like individuals that I've spoken with. Right. Like I've had people um, in professional settings, right, who are literally formally supposed to be in a position where they're supposed to be like an, an advocate for me or speak up or whatever. And they they ultimately turn into um people just kind of whispering in this on the sidelines of how you can essentially mm-hmm. how you can essentially deal with the oppression better right so i'll be like hey i'm being mistreated here hey this is this is wrong and then the response is more of um well have you tried this well i don't know what to tell you it's like well no what are you going to do though like you're spo- mm-hmm. you like what can you actually do what are you going to say like like how can you leverage your actual power to help me and and that's where you know the conversations completely fall flat and um mm-hmm. and so and so i really i'd really love to hear more about about that from your perspective on the role that power plays not only in how it how it impacts folks who have the authority and social capital to to speak up for you and help you but also the role it plays in uh black and brown people being afraid mm-hmm. to speak up for themselves Mm-hmm. So it's so it's so crazy. So I was having a conversation with one of my girlfriends um, who uh, was recently let go. And this is going to come from make this connection. Um, was recently let go from a role, a diversity and inclusion role within an organization, black woman. Um, and she reported directly to the chief diversity officer. Um, and so sort of the impetus of was her being let go from this role was feedback that she received from the individuals who she was supporting in the business. But in by nature of the industry, these are predominantly white male. It's like a defense technology contract of sorts. Anyway, one of the pieces of feedback that the, um, that my friend colleague got from the chief diversity officer was um, who is a woman of color, right? Um, Not a black woman but another woman of color obviously has positional power. And I say, I, I differentiate her being a woman of color, not a black woman, because I, when I finish this story, I want to kind of um, paint the picture of how even people who are uh, in this group can perpetuate like anti-blackness and exclusion um, and, and, and not even know it and, and perpetuate these power dynamics and not even know it or know it and don't care. But that's a whole nother thing. Anyway, um, the piece of feedback that she received from this chief diversity officer was, well, you know, um, one of the concerns is that your communication style is just a little too aggressive. And um, it, it, it is perceived that you like to, like, play up this race thing. In this exchange, the chief diversity officer felt as though, at least from the perspective from my friend and colleague, felt as though she could share this because she is a woman of color, right? Not a black woman, but a woman of color. It's just shared experience, right? 
Um, and right, right, it's a whole other thing. <laughs> this is a shared experience. That's not really a shared experience, but yeah. So anyway, <laughs> she's like venting to me, and and this vent is valid and necessary, and we need more of that. Um, she's venting to me about this because she's like, "Well, dang, bro, like I, I started dollar myself, like." You know, like, am, am I tripping? Am I, am, am I wrong? That's and that I, gaslighting. Right? And so I asked her, I said, I wonder at what point this chief diversity officer and, like, steward of equity and inclusion felt it her role when she was um, uh, met with this feedback by these business leaders to, to, to actually say um, and challenge, you know, these tropes these angry black women she's playing the race card all these shows that she should be privy to as someone who's like a steward and purveyor of equity and inclusion right um at what point did i, I wonder if there was like something in her that felt responsible like a, a responsibility in those moments rather than coming to her and saying you know ultimately like the determination that hey you know that you just ain't a fit which is what perpetuates a, a whole bunch of stuff in and of itself rather than that using her positional power in that moment with those business leads to say, no, not here, like not on my watch, right? Um, let's dig a little bit deeper. Help me understand like your behavior interpretation as to why you're, you know, categorizing or interpreting her tone or communication style or what have you that way, right? Like that's what like activating like your positional power, even her being a woman of color, but like a leader, a purveyor of like this work looks like. Um, and so I take issue and I, and I do believe there needs to be more of, um, leaders coming off of like the, the sideline of like espoused, um, commitment and engagement and espoused values around inclusion. Like, you know what, every time I hear something, I'm going to say something. Every time something is, you know, this, this doesn't feel right. I'm going to say something. Actually having a, um, a code of sort of agency or conduct for, for, for oneself. And so when I'm in, in any given situation, whether I'm hearing something, looking at a policy, um, discussing something with like my leaders, does this collude or is this, you know, am I complicit in, in um, what the culture is or am I pushing back? You know what I mean? Like, cause there's really one or the other. Am I being complicit in um, uh, exclusion? Am I being complicit in, uh, whiteness? Am I being complicit in um, inequity? Or am I pushing back? You know, am I challenging it? And so I think that's what using one's, not even think, I know that's what using one's power on the day-to-day looks like. Um, and when I heard her story, I was really triggered by it because, so before coming into consulting, I worked in corporate spaces, very traditional, um, uh, predominantly white space and I remember that feeling just kind of like as someone who was buried in the work and obviously responsible as a black woman buried in the work not as much like positional power certainly also um, experiencing that and that I didn't have racism and sexism feeling like well damn is there anybody up there who like you know like the, the, who, who, who's 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 being that voice who's activating that agency um, whether they are chief diversity officer or not right and so uh for, you know, white leaders who are about this life, right? In quotes, um, every day, like challenging it in your meetings, um, uh, w- with your colleagues, um, um, when you're 
sort of picking out or having conversations around um, talent decisions and promotions and development. Am I being complicit or am I um, pushing back? And so I think that is what using one's power um, looks like. On the flip side, I do think there is enormous opportunity to, um, and this is where I'm interested in doing more. And so obviously a lot of our work is centered around getting um, leaders, white people educated, empowered, building their capacity to activate equity, inclusion, and what have you. I think just as much work, um, and I, and I um, want to see this a bit more, um, is really figuring out a way that does, in a way that is that does not cause harm or perpetuate emotional labor or fatigue, a way that really um, enacts the inherent, po- inherent power in black people, other people of color, to really begin to be the spook who sat by the door, really. Like, it, go in these systems and, like, take them over, essentially, in our own way, whatever that looks like. I don't know what that looks like, right? But that is my desire because I don't know that everyone's going to have this mass exodus from corporate America. I don't think that is realistic. But I think and would love it if we could figure out how to just um, uh, figure out a way to not assimilate or um, assimilate into these cultures like a lot of these development or efficacy programs seek to do on the low, um, but really like go into these systems to dismantle them in ways that honor the whole of us and also in ways that don't like perpetuate this emotional labor. Um, I don't, I struggle with like empower. And so that's why I use the, the t- I've been using the word more sort of like just enacting agency or like the inherent power that's within us because empower just sounds a little like, I don't know, savory me some, I don't know. Um, but yeah, those are some thoughts that I've been having around like how just using power, how we can use power just more, um, actively, um, and then also taking it back for ourselves. If that makes sense. No, it does make sense. When you talk about like this code of like of agency or, or being a change yeah. agent, I think about it being, I think it also being a code of like courage, right? Because like mm-hmm. the, the reality is like, we don't have a strong historical record that advocating for black and brown people, black and brown, including black and brown women. So all black and brown people, anyone black and brown, we don't really have a historical record that there's an incentive to do that. Right. Like we do have an historical record mm. that not advocating black and brown people will uh, keep you safe. Um, you know, we had, mm. Howard, we had Howard, Bryant. Mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like we had Howard Bryant mm-hmm. from ESPN and NPR. He was on the show and he was taught. He said, he literally said, he said to, to directly um, advocate for black people is to put your entire career at risk. And this is someone who's been, you know, who's a senior writer. He was, he's been at ESPN, um, you know, over 13 years and, and been with NPR nearly the same amount of time. And before that was writing for major publications. I mean, highly decorated. One of the, like, one of the most senior and most decorated black sports journalists in the world, period. And so when you talk about like this next level um, and you say you're pessimistic, I don't think, I still think that there's still quite a bit of hope in you because like just to be in this work at all means that you mm-hmm. do believe that there's cynical, not pessimist, cynical, like cynical, 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 cynical. <laughs> I, I don't, I, don't, I still, I st- even still. And I would say that I do, I'm also a bit cynical as well. And just like, yeah. and like, I just, I, I, cause I'm looking at the evidence, but at the same time, I, there has to be some level yeah. of hope between the both yeah. of us, because if we, if, if there wasn't, then we wouldn't, we wouldn't be doing mm-hmm. it because because we still believe there's some capacity or there's a certain number of folks, uh, majority folks out there 
who are still at least interested in demonstrating some level of courage. But I think, mm-hmm. but I think the challenge has been so far as that, you know, we continue to see black and brown people marginalized. You remember that letter that Facebook, those employees from Facebook sent out last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a report mm-hmm. just came out about the lack, the continued lack of diversity in tech, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, despite all of these little efforts. Um, so I remember initially, initi- remember when the whole like calling out tech and diversity, this was obviously like years ago yeah. when the whole tech and diversity thing was like a big deal. Like, oh my gosh, we've got to like, we have this data, all of them will put out their data. It's such a big thing. We're going to address it. I fear now that like we've become so we're essentially normalized that the data doesn't change. Correct. You know what I mean? Like we're, even, we're, we're, no, right? it's, absolutely. We just we shrugged our shoulders at the fact. That, oh, we know it's bad. Yeah, like, oh yeah, like yeah, like like we've essentially normalized that the data, um, um, the data hasn't changed. There was something you said that I thought about. I think a big part of this power conversation is also the focus on collective power, right, and, and shared risk. Hmm. And so I think that it's a really, you know, it's fair to say that yes. There's a lot of risk associated with advocating, especially directly. We see it in the mainstream for people with socioeconomic power. And so even with Gab, right? Gab Union, kind of like, right. if you want to, if you're going to be pro-black, the academy, the white academy will not have it. Um, which is why I think that shared, this shared risk thing is so important. Um, this sense of white people really being radical in their advocacy and, and putting their actions behind the talk around this work is so important. Um, because the reality is, yeah, black people do have a lot more to lose. And um, when it comes to uh, advocating in white spaces for our own well-being and power and reallocation of resources and all this and all this stuff, um, which is why, why yes, there I, there is hope. There's still hope and I'm optimistic and I um, recognize the need for white people to take a more active role in sharing the risk. Not a not a front seat like that's different. Not 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 like you know necessarily leading the charge, being the voice, but like sharing the risk. Um, which what does that look like? I, I don't know that I see that. Like so, I'm gonna give you an example, and this is kind of like a it's something I reflected on. Um, I, I observed a couple years ago when I was at a conference, um, and so. Uh, this is this is when I was working in corporate. I wasn't even consulting yet, and so I was at this conference, and they were doing this. Uh, they were doing this. Um, what do we call like a tribute to like pioneers? These are like the the tribute of like all these pioneers of diversity yeah. and inclusion advocates and consultants up on the stage, right? But this is before I started working for Mary Frances, but she was one of the women. She was one of the people up there. Mary Frances Winters was up there along with a few other counterparts. You're not going. You're not going to drop no names. Um, Howard Ross, Deb Dackett, <laughs> um, Steve Hannah Moore is up there. A whole bunch of folks, right? This is something that has stuck with me because I think when I experienced it, and y'all probably like, well, damn, break get to the story. When I experienced it, y'all, I was like, huh, this feel weird. And, and now that I've become more critical of my thinking, I'm like, oh, now I realize why this feels weird. Anyway, they up there giving a tribute to um, the the Trailblazers, Mary Frances, peak black woman magic, y'all. Um, doing true. this work 35 plus years. Uh, so shout out to her. <laughs> she gets up and talks about her experience being a black woman entrepreneur in this space, the diversity, equity, inclusion space. Um, mind you, room full of people who are about this life, 
the diversity, equity, life. Um, and she shares, you know, even as an entrepreneur, she is still experiences, um, you know, the stigma associated with her black womanness. And one of the ways that that plays out practically is she'll go into organizations or, you know, bid for work and clients will actually say, um, uh, I would like, it would be better if we heard this from a white person or a white guy. Um, it just will resonate better with our culture. It, it, this gets into like the whole like like the whole like how this even perpetuates like economic injustice, yeah. right? And yeah, so yeah, like yeah, yeah. bidding for client, a black woman owned firm who's, you know, essentially organizations who are wanting to espouse inclusion and equity would, you know, she'd bid for work she was sharing and they would say, Oh, we prefer not to work with a black owned firm. We prefer or our organization would probably um, hear this best from a white man or a white person. Like that's a thing. I hope y'all don't know that this is not a like that's that's, that's actually like thing. Um, and that goes back to like the whole like we love us some. And, and we could talk later about the balance, but that's what I was trying to get at between like the balance between like shared risk and like feeling the need, like white people sharing risk versus like feeling need to be like front and center, like in this work. But I don't think those things can be I don't think those things can be compartmentalized for a lot of folks who are used to being in charge. Mm-hmm. So so let me tell you this. Let me tell you what happens. On Keep this going. Stage. She's Keep sharing going. her truth. And let's just say anytime a black woman gets on stage and shares their truth like that in and of itself is just fire. Like that's boss because we are oftentimes like either stigmatized or undermined or all of these other things when we share our truth. She up on that stage and said it. And I'm sitting in the audience all kinds of like, oh my gosh, she just, she just boss. I manifested working for her, y'all. Anyway, um, <laughs> so she, she shares that, you know, in, in the context of we have much more work to do. Anytime me as a black woman can, is turned down for work because of me being a black woman in this, in this space, there's still more, much more work to do. And one of her fellow colleagues um, on that stage who is a white male. And so white male, when I think white male on the stage, I'm thinking opportunity to like activate power. I'm thinking opportunity to share risk. I'm thinking opportunity to um, really affirm the truth that a black woman just articulated, right? His counter or response, um, perhaps it wasn't meant to be a counter, the response was, well, as a white man in this space, I'm told the same thing. How would I, or how could I know, or, you know, uh, organizations tell me all the time that they don't want to hear this from a white person. And when I tell you, I'm a, this, I'm a full circle, when I tell you my, like, stomach dropped, I didn't know, couldn't name why in that moment my stomach dropped. Because I looked around the room and was like, am I the only person who kind of felt uncomfortable by that? Like, I can't really name the dynamic that played out here. But I felt like that was an enormous opportunity. And I go back to like shared risk versus like being front and center. Shared risk looks like, you know what? Rather than me come behind this black woman who just spoke her truth and talk about how this happens to me too. Um, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to say, y'all, that's jacked up. And so all y'all budget in this room who um, say y'all are ready to influence change and Activate inclusion within your organizations and leverage vendors to all of y'all in here who just heard this black woman say that her voice doesn't matter um, as much as mine as a white man. That's foul. That's foul. And we can't hold both those. You know what I mean? You, you, we can't say that we are um, 
really pushing and affirming and, and wanting to create cultures where inclusion is real, but prioritize or ampl- or, or not want to amplify or not want to uh, partner with or not want to engage black and brown people who are doing the work, right? That's what I, that's what I wanted to hear. Right, what I didn't hear, and so when I talked about like shared risk and the white people will be doing like incremental shifts, like that was an opportunity for like an incremental shift in the space to leverage one's power. And they didn't even take like a collective mass. That was like one moment for him to like say something, right, or um, uh, affirm and amplify. And that has stuck with me. That has stuck with me over the. That, this was probably like six years ago, and I think it's a really good example of the work we're not doing. <laughs> The work that, because this is, again, was the inclusion conference, the work that even uh, practitioners and advocates, especially um, our, the, you know, our uh, um, white counterparts are doing but not doing, um, Can and we, how we miss opportunities. You've talked around it a little bit, and you've, and you've used some language kind of at the top of the interview. Can we talk a little bit about... Um, the role that that justice plays in like in any in, in this work like w- like what is when we talk about justice first of all like tactically how do we define justice in the context of mm-hmm. this work and then um, and then what does it look like to pursue justice in a capitalistic context yeah um I've, I've really been thinking about that as a a lot more as of late and more critically um, and so when I think about mainstream, like D&I work right now, like I can honestly say that, you know, it's not right. It's, it's not centered on justice. So when I think about justice, I think about correcting systems. I think about um, reallocation of resources. I think about sort of power, um, uh, sort of dismantling like power structures. I think about actively like looking for the people who have we haven't really tapped on for their perspective and these strategies and um, bringing them to the center of conversations and the center of like policy development and the center of um, as- actually asking the people in our workplaces who are experiencing perpetual exclusion, um, not even ask- not not asking them like employee engagement, but actually engaging their perspective in a way that is not like tokenized, um, paying them for it, uh, and, that, and, that's and paying them fairly. Paying them fairly for it. That's what I think about when we, when we talk about justice. But that's not really... So I wonder if it's even... And this is after reading... A, I was reading a post by a professor out of Bowling Green State. Um, and they talked about the difference between like what diversity and inclusion may ask and how equity and social justice responds. Have you heard of um, Dr. Defina Lazarus-Stewart? Have you heard of them? No, I have not. I'll make sure to put that in the show notes. So tell us about them. Look, 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 look. Because I copied and pasted um, um, some of the analogies they used. And so one of the quotes here um, they use is diversity and inclusion as stuff like who's in the room? Has everyone's ideas been heard? Whereas equity and social justice responds, who's trying to get in the room but can't? Whose presence? in the room is under constant threat or erasure or minimization whose ideas will not be taken seriously because they aren't in the majority. And so the way that they framed, um, there's another one in here, diversity and inclusion may ask, is this environment safe for everyone to feel like they belong? Whereas equity and justice will challenge whose safety is being sacrificed and minimized 
to allow others to be comfortable maintaining their dehumanizing views, right? And so I wonder even if, like, how we have framed up diversity and inclusion even holds enough space for justice these days, right? Mm-hmm. I wonder if they can even, and it goes back to, like, I mean, I know it's much deeper than, like, DNI, but then it goes back to capitalism because now DNI is based on business case and innovation and bottom line. Correct. And I wonder if justice can even release the right, like, like, if we can even begin to realize it. So I think, I mean, now I don't, I know that this is much, this work is obviously beyond my immediate sphere of influence. And so certainly when I enter any room, my hope is that the people and leaders in the room feel at least more empowered to understand the role they play in realizing equity and justice. And so part of that is using very direct language. Part of that is making sure we're amplifying the experiences of the people who aren't in the room and how we curate content. But I do think that much more broadly, there has to be like just a, a shift in how we're positioning this work, right? Um, and yeah, like that, that's something I've been thinking. Like, but no one talks about justice in the context of DNI work, and, I, and that is the downfall, right? And that's why we don't see shifts. That's why Pamela Newkirk's book is pretty much saying, like, yeah, this work is a fraud um, because we've lost sight of where it actually, or at least the intentions of where the work was, and so or how the work started, and so. I would venture to say that diversity and inclusion evolves from black people seeking justice, seeking for our humanity to be affirmed um, or or recognized, right? Getting what we deserve, access, um, and really using our um, lived experiences and collective power to influence change. And today that's kind of been like appropriated in a way, like this weird way, like of, you know, now it's all about, okay, bottom line and how can organizations innovate and how can we reach these new markets? Um, I'm not saying that we can't use that as a means to an end, but I do think it becomes problematic when that's what the conversation is centered around, right? Because then it trickles down to how we actually um, do the work. And that's something I struggle with these days. Well, that's something that I struggle with. Yeah. Well, no, I'm, I'm right there with you. And I, I think also because there's also just so much psychology. And I promise if if I could have gotten to where I am in terms of having a house and like, you know, taking care of my family and stuff Hello. Mm-hmm. And, and also had a Ph.D. in psychology, I would because there's a lot of psychology that goes, I believe, that goes into um, the reasons why people in the majority simply just don't pursue the greater work of addressing and analyzing and assessing um, the systemic challenges that organizations have, the systemic problems that actually cause um, exclusion to thrive and that bear out the results of excluding black and brown people. Um, I think when you say psychology, you mean like the why you feel like the why behind it, the why behind rooted in things like this human nature, human nature, (laughs) ego, like uh, like MLK junior talks about like, yeah, he talked about like, it's part of white folks inherent feelings of superiority. They feel like they have so little to learn. Right. So like, yeah, like so yeah. some, a lot of that is just psychological to me. And so you th- when you think about that, when you talk about like even organizations, how they're trying to present themselves as like truly like diverse, equitable, inclusive, but at the same mm-hmm. time are, 
are extremely afraid of like litigious risk. So mm-hmm. they don't want to like take accountability for their own behaviors because they believe in taking accountability for the behaviors would open themselves up to lawsuits where it's like, mm-hmm. and so it's like, it's like there's a lack of diversity even in legal teams for these organizations and how they operate from a position of scarcity and fear. Like there's all these just different factors that come mm-hmm. in. You know what I mean? Like, and so I hear you when you talk about like there being space, like, is there actually space for justice uh, within this within this in this work but like the reality is if you have two people and one has been treated inequitably some type of justice is going to have to happen if you want to talk about creating equity like there's something that's going to have to be right-sized mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. or directly addressed it, it's not going to happen in a during a panel or a one-off mm-hmm. or an unconscious bias or, or a conf- mm-hmm. yeah, conference or unconscious bias training is going to have to happen in some substantive changes to corporate policies and procedures. And I think to me, I think that's like, that's why this work, while it's been around for X amount of years, it's still very much so in its fledgling state. I mean, I could even make an argument that the work hasn't even really largely started. The winners group is doing a phenomenal job out. This is not an ad, but like y'all are one of the few spaces out there that are really looking at that. Also Michelle J. Kim with Awaken. Co, mm-hmm. see you out there too. Mm-hmm. But so there, there, there are pockets and these smaller, um, and frankly, it's always the the women and black and brown women doing the work um, who are really leading that charge. But by and large, you know, I'm not seeing it. Um, so, so let's talk about this. You mentioned or alluded to the idea of uh, white folks being uh, sharing some of the risk, but not necessarily being out in front. And off mic, we talked about the concept of um, of decolonization. Um, and we talked to, and, and I've also like, I was talking to Ade on, on a previous podcast. It was like, she and I did an episode this was some time ago, but she said she read somewhere that someone said, replace the D in D E I or the D in uh, D and I with decolonization. And, um, oh, I think I've seen that one in the tweet or something. Mm-hmm, yeah. And she was, mm-hmm. she was like searching for that thing, but I'd love to hear more about your thoughts on like, on one, the concept of colonization. And then like, why, why are we talking about decolonization? So when I think about the concept of colonization, I think about um, pretty much adding like this overlay of whiteness like to our work. Um, and so I mentioned earlier that um, this work was or is grounded in lived experiences of black people, um, um, black and brown people really uh, seeking justice. And so I think when when we start to get away from conversations around justice and access and policy and systemic change um, and focus more on, you know, money and cases and innovation and bottom line, when we start to prioritize sort of white comfort or white discomfort over systemic change or accountability or collective responsibility, that's what colonization looks like. Or, or those are like manifestations of, um, colonization. So I was thinking about a couple. So we support, and this is no shade, maybe shade, but I don't know. So we support. Um, <laughs> we support a lot of organizations who are part of this cohort of organizations, executive leaders, CEOs, Action Council, CEO Action Council. Okay. Um. In theory, that body of leaders. I feel like like they were really, 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 really about that work. I feel like that is the like perfect breeding ground for some systemic change, like real change. I say that because you have a bunch of 
CEOs, I'm assuming because that's the name, CEOs who have espoused their commitment to inclusion um, and diversity, uh, who have access to funds and structures and organizations and boards um, to really like do this work and do this, you know, do this work well. I was on there, um, something I've been reflecting on, especially after reading, starting to read Pamela Newkirk's book, um, but I was on their site preparing for a session that I was facilitating for an organization who was on it. They do like a, a day of understanding where like all of them have to do sort of conversations about race. Yeah. Sure. A good incremental thing. Like, okay, now you're going to have, going to have education, but that can't be it or have conversations that can't be it. So I was doing my little research in preparation for this engagement, um, looking up the mission and like the pillars and stuff. And um, I did like a quick, you know how you can do page search, yeah. just the kind of a bit a quick page search on very specific terms that, at least from my perspective, are, are quite critical to doing this work, doing this work well, especially when you have power and resources. And so I like control search for like racism, justice, equity, reparation. This is me just going to search and find on the page, sure. just to see if any of those words were present. And none of them were, right? And so, like, I was kind of triggered by that because I think it it gets at, again, this um, sanitizing. Like, so so very well-intentioned. Like, everybody, 98% of people espouse inclusion. You know what I mean? Like, 98% of right. people perhaps consider themselves, like, good. As a matter of fact, there is a, a, a guy on our team, Travis, like pushes back on this whole notion of what it means to be a good white person and and, and he says like no no more good white people i need y'all to be bad actually bad out in, you know what i mean like yeah um he pushes back on what it means to be sort of good-natured in the context of of equity work and, and justice work and how being good-natured oftentimes means being complicit right and so i was looking for these words calling out racism calling out things like justice or at least espousing justice um language around reparations that gets at how organizations can use the money that they make to reallocate resources, right? Right. And none of it was there. And I had one of those moments where, sure, kudos to whoever is on the forefront of this effort and leaders who, you know, and actually, no, kudos. We, we got us a hand in handing out diversity cookies. Rules but, don't. Like, yeah, like, no, no kudos. Because you're like, right? Sometimes I got to check my own internalized oppression, right? So anyway... So I'm looking like I'm looking for the words. Like I was looking for the words, like something. And not on it now, there. by the way, while we're talking, I'm like oh, You search and find and you tell me if I if I miss something. Racism is not even one there anywhere. Um there's actually a statement that says, Well, you know, we address all dimensions of diversity. Like, this, like, all, it's so all lives matter Anyway, I, I struggle. I so you, struggle you feel like, you feel that. like. <laughs> <laughs> like Yo, this that model doesn't work. Hold on. Hold on. You feel like, so you feel like, um, I want to make sure, because so we're, we're about to get into a, a sensitive zone. So hold on. So your, so your take is. <laughs> So your take is is that is that CEO action is a little all lives mattery. I agree with it's you. The, I'm just asking. That was the vibe. That that's the, the vibe. vibe. And the, that's the vibe that I got. And I was like, 
I was like, I was thinking to myself, like, imagine if all of, you know, this, this coalition of hundreds of CO actions, pretty much part of their chart on the website said, you know what? Racism is real and we are going to address it this way. At the root of racism is white supremacy and we're going to address it this way. We will only get to justice if we have some real intentional restructuring and conversations around how we're going to you know, use our power and our money to, to, to support historically marginalized communities. Like, like imagine if there was like transparency around and, and maybe, you know, I don't know, I'm not in the workings, but like just transparency around, you know, um, it's not just day of understanding, but we're going to make sure that each of these organizations have a strategic approach to education. And you know what? It's not just going to be a focus on unconscious bias. Right? Because that's the yeah, you know, at least outside looking in, there's this focus on conscious bias. There's a, a mobile. Again, I get it. But we, there is so much more. Have you been there in, the, mo- have you been like, in the mobile? I haven't. Okay. I, I, I haven't. I haven't either. Um, I, have, I have seen it. I've seen it on college campuses, which is interesting because I'm like, okay, let's pull up at some of these board meetings, you know what I mean? Like, like, I'm like, so, so there's like a, a, you know, they, they put at college campuses and yes, we need to definitely educate and focus on the leaders of the future. I get it. Right. What would a decolonized version of CEO action look like? Getting rid of, um, uh, sort of the, 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 the for lack of a better term, like sanitized language, actually naming in our written charter, because this is the written word, this is our written word and how we're going to govern ourselves, naming yes. dynamics of power, naming dynamics of inequity, calling out oppression. You know what I mean? Um, right. Actually decentering. Cause so essentially when we sanitize, we're saying, you know what, how the majority or how white people feel matters more than moving the work forward. And so I think the ideal state would be decentering, like abandoning that train of thought for purpose of really wanting to um, enact or dismantle systems, right? And so we're not going to sanitize language. We're actually going to call out and be vulnerable about it, right? Um, leverage. And so that's also shared risk because it's a, from my perspective, it's very different for us to have expectation for um, black and brown chief diversity officers and advocates to do this than, you know, 80% or the 85% of white male CEOs. You know what I mean? Like that's a different kind of risk. And so I think them leveraging their power, these CEOs leveraging their power, proximity to a lot of these spaces and rooms in a way, um, that is how, that that's 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 what it would that's what a more effective or at least a start point. Um, FSG did a study around how organizations have prioritized very um, racial justice, specifically racial justice, and so leveraging those best practices, right? Um, and being okay with focusing on racial justice, because it's at its core, that is one of um, the more salient forms of oppression that our country continues to struggle with, right? And certainly, all oppression is interconnected. Um, but, but calling that out and addressing it, um, you know, actually, so, so a couple months ago, I can't remember which firm it was, or what organization it was, but there was like this program of like, you know those um, development programs that are for like when black and brown people come into firms and um, uh, they're like, I guess I've never gone through one, 
but it's, it's, it's supposed to be some sort of enrichment or efficacy and kind of make sure that you're um, coming into the culture and uh, oh, like, like an onboarding orientation program. Um, yeah, but it's like guys. As, it's, yeah, it's guys as such, but it's really like these assimilation camps, right? Oh, yeah. So they'll, um, do, that. they'll do that like in a lot of major consulting firms, too, like where basically you go to like to almost a, like a, It's a thing. It's a best practice. It's a thing. Like it's almost a retreat. Like you go off. And, and that's um, a problem. And that is it's so <laughs> mainstream. And so I struggle with how even like the human resources industry, like as a system, has like perpetuates this with terms like culture fit and these development programs that are essentially saying you need to get in where you fit in if you want to survive or thrive, right? And Ooh, so yeah. to have yeah. an action council have like a pillar that says, you know what? That's to assimilation camps. For 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 the next five years, like we are going to like that's a structure to eliminate. Like, you know what I mean? Like that's something that yeah. we can Collectively say we're going to focus on and not perpetuate anymore, right? Well, I think like black and brown, like black and brown are just like non non majority employees. Like they die in between the rules, right? So like there are so many people that you can point to who didn't actually break any rules. Their performance, their performance is great. Like they have, there's no documentation on them, but they just didn't fit, right? They just didn't for 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 unwritten reasons. They didn't fit. And when you talk about like like when you start, um, what's the word? Like really marketing these assimilation type activities on a large scale and as, best ma- as best practice, they, they become informal best practices. So they're informal, but they're still best practices. So, so you, even though there's nothing, you haven't broken any rules, you're not doing anything against company mm-hmm. policy. Um, you're still not a fit. And so then it ends up excluding people who have the diversity of thought. Ironically, I'm using that term like, mm-hmm. like literally. Yeah, no, yeah. yeah. that's the thing, too. If you do a search of final diversity of thought on their face, I think that's up there. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's how you were using it. <laughs> I wasn't. I was using it literally, but I hear I you. I know, but you know, but like, it just made me think about it. I do. Um, I want to make sure that we we give you some space to talk a little bit more about about the winners group, right? So, so talk to us about the firm for those in diversity, equity, and inclusion work folks know about the winners group, but we have all types of listeners listening in. So please just, just talk to us a little bit more about the firm and what you do as an executive within the firm. Sure. And so the winners group, um, we are a global diversity, equity, and inclusion consulting firm. Um, I've name dropped her quite a bit throughout this interview, but we were founded um, by Mary Frances Winter. She is still our president and CEO. Um, and we support organizations large and small um, on their journey towards equity, inclusion, and justice. And so um, a lot of times that's supporting with cultural and equity audits. And so really interrogating the organizational's culture um, and understanding how individuals' experiences are different um, based on who they are, right? Based on cultural norms, um, based on policies and practices that are inherently exclusive. And so a lot of times we are um, collecting data via qualitative means and quantitative means to really tell a story. Um, and so we support in cultural and equity audits, obviously education and learning. And so that's where that's where most of my work is. I work with a really bomb team of instructional designers, principal strategists, and um, facilitators and consultants to design learning experiences. Um, I emphasize experiences. I shared earlier that I um, do not like the word training and that we really seek to facilitate shifts in perspectives and paradigms and the spaces that we curate. Um, And so 
um, like I said, our approach and ideal partnerships are those that are long-term in nature and developmental and so modules-based. And so sometimes we're blending in-person experiences with um, um, out-of-classroom, peer-to-peer experiences. Um, we'll leverage multimedia. We're really big on not perpetuating the emotional labor sort of power dynamic in some of this um some of what we see in, in educational learning. And so we leverage a lot of like multimedia. Um, we really emphasize reciprocal learning so that it is a shared experience and not perpetuating power dynamics. A lot of our work is around building capacity. And so we've been doing more recently work around supporting diversity, equity, and inclusion practitioners and just continuing to hone their toolkit so that they can be effective in these systems, right? And so... Um, we do a lot around uh, facilitating or empowering individuals to have conversations, difficult conversations across uh, um, racial lines, other dimensions of difference. Um, one of my babies, and so I'll uh, be very honest and direct in saying that a lot of the conversations that I would like to have, we're not always having in some of these spaces. But that doesn't mean we don't have them at all. And so we leverage other meetings, mediums, our virtual learning labs, and the inclusion solution as a way to um, ensure that our platforms are unpacking conversations that matter, right? And so power, um, we've talked about things like uh, identity-based trauma, gentrification, cultural appropriation, how all of these things show up in our um, organizational systems. Um, and even just how we understand the word. Mary Frances is actually about to write a book on black fatigue, right? Um, yeah. specifically in the context of moving this work forward. Yeah. Um, and then we also support um, strategy development. And so we work directly with leaders who are really trying to figure out how to do this work and do this work well and mindfully and be not just committed, but actually engaged in it. Um, and so we support uh, organizations with strategy development. Um, yeah, so that's the work. Um, love the team. Love working for a black woman. Um, anytime I have the opportunity to show up on behalf of the Winters group and then just on behalf of just being black and like in these spaces and having access, I don't take it lightly. Yes. Right. I have a, one thing I didn't share in my bio is that I'm a mom to a black son. And so there's a certain degree of it. As much as I'm cynical about this work, there's also a certain degree of like urgency, um, that I experience in this work because quite frankly, uh, we, you know, we don't unfortunately have the luxury of like kind of not doing this work it's, it's, it's human it's, it's our humanity it's life or death it ain't just business case y'all i think about that and what it means to realize a world where my black son you know um uh at least doesn't have to feel the after effects of white supremacy the same way his grandfather and great grandfather and uncle and brother have like, like you know, like something's got to change. And so, no, some, this some, work something does. In my profession is an extension of that too, right? No, something does um, have to change because, you know, it is just interesting. Like, like I said at the top, like there's these studies coming out about the increased lack of diversity. And we talked about the fact that, like, we're at a point now where it's like, well, it just kind of is what it is, right? Like, you know, similar to like the Oscars and the Grammys, it's just like, okay, well, we know. Um, we just know that black, you know, that we're not going to be represented here, and we're going to continue to, you know, kind of continue on business as usual. But that's not, that's just not no. sustainable. And I think it's about, not. I think about the fact that you know I'm going to be a parent too, 
And I think mm-hmm. about like the fact that there, there is a future generation, right? Like my, that is, that officially starts my, my, my ticking clock on, I'm, I'm only going to be here so long. And so mm-hmm. what does it really look like to make sure that there's a world for them that is recognizable so they're not looking like i hate to say it i hope i don't sound ridiculous i don't know who this man is i mean he could be walking down the street i wouldn't i wouldn't know a thing sorry to this man you know just sorry i'm sorry to this man i don't know what you know like um <laughs> so even so i'll say this one thing so another reason why I'm, I'm just as passionate about this work is there's there's even like intra group work that needs to be done that I'm passionate about. Yes. And so work around just like healing ourselves and pouring into ourselves and our inherent power agency, um, demis, uh, internalized oppression, like all of those things that influence our system that sort of take root in us that influence the system in, one in day, really jacked up ways. Straight is up. Like, one day we gotta yeah. come. No one. We gotta have. We gotta have you. And maybe, you know what I'm saying, maybe we'll even have, um, you know, Mary Frances Winters, you know, on the platform. But talk about internalized oppression and like the role that it plays in um, in in perpetuating these systems that oppress us. Right. Because like it's rare, you know, like and I keep on shouting out Howard Bryant, but like it's rare because I don't there's not a lot of black and brown folks that I see like in senior senior levels who will really treat speak truth to power. Uh, because like I, I'm, I'm telling you, I don't know if I've met one person, if I've been in an organization and let's say, let's say, I, cause I've, I've moved around. Like my career has been a zigzag, a, a upward zigzag, uh, by the grace of God. And, uh, and we do thank him. That's when the blessings come in. Blessings come in. You know what I'm saying? But, <laughs> but, but uh, <laughs> it's been a blessing. So thank you. Um, and I, I do respect you. Thank you. Thank you, God. Uh, but the, when I join, when I go, when I go to another company, and I see a black person, and they've been, let's say they've been at the company for more than like six years, ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the time, they will not be boldly advocating for black people. Mm. So there's this um book, Race, Work, and Leadership: New Perspectives on the Black Experience, edited by um, the lead editor is a black woman, Laura Morgan Roberts. Um, in this book, there's a collection of studies, one of which interrogates this dynamic that you're talking about and the effectiveness of black leaders in white spaces. In that study, they offer this matrix of out-group identification. And so the extent to which the black person identifies with, um, in this context, the out-group white people and um, sort of in-group sort of identity and pride, right? And they offer examples of leaders who had one but not the other, right? And then um, leaders who were effective because they had both. And how more often than not, the norm is that there is more prioritization of identifying with white people um, and the white culture and the dominant culture than it is with understanding self and being grounded and having a foundation in self that oftentimes lead to them being complicit in these systems. And so the study is good because it pretty much names and substantiates pretty much what you just said and we experience in these spaces, calls it out, and then offers a model of what could be. Because what we're not going to say is that, what I don't like to um, perpetuate is, oh, the only way we can get in where we fit in is if we are complicit and assimilate. I don't believe that to be true. But, and this but study folks, shows that it um but folk, folks believe that and they tout it as wisdom yeah and we, yeah and we and that's internalized oppression is real and then so right? and so then, um, and, and meanwhile so then you got folks who look like us and folks who don't look like us both oppressing 
us. And they both sit at the table like, look at us. Hey, look at us. Look at us. Huh? Who would have thought? Not me. You know, they just. <laughs> <laughs> like, but you know what? The thing is, and, and we're going to have to. Uh, there's a there's another video out there where Michael Max um, is addressing a. So much to be learned from history. God, like none of this is new. None of this is new. Um, but Malcolm X is addressing a university count, a university um, audience. And he talks about the ways in which um, uh, white people leverage um, black people as tools to push their narrative and like influence. Like he, he talks about that in the context of that day and age. Um, and I was, as I was watching the video, I thought about how powerful it would be if we leveraged a lot of these stories and this stuff is not new right this stuff isn't new um sankofa is real if we were to actually leverage it um to to to, to do better um i don't know what that looks like and i think about even what what that looks like in the context of diversity education and learning like how do we embed history because they ain't getting in the school system a little bit more into the work that we're doing um a conversation for another day but a lot of us just a lot of people just don't know uh, a lot of people don't know, and I'm talking about us, unfortunately, um, because we are not immune to the forces of white supremacy and whiteness and, and racism, obviously. And I think until we focus, I think there is a work required of us, among us, for us, that centers us, that needs to be done and as much as we are, you know, doing this other work to educate white people. So... We need both. Um, I have a lot more grace, a lot more grace for the work that we need to be doing as a community because I recognize the trauma and pain is real, um, which is a whole nother conversation. It but, is. It is. And this, yeah. is, this has been incredible. I want to I want to go ahead and end this conversation on that. Note. I know. I know. You know what I'm saying? Because we've been we've been we've been going. But it's been great, though. I and know. I want to just thank you. Um, so, so, um, y'all thank y'all for listening to the living corporate podcast. You know, we do this every single week. We come into y'all with new guests every single week. Now, look, I need y'all to help me with these five star reviews. Okay. Cause I mean, you think it's easy for us to come up here, find these guests, put these questions together, coordinate them. I'm not making myself out to be a martyr, but at the same time, what more do you want from me? But replace me with us. You know what I mean? We out here. Okay. Nah, I'm playing. I love y'all, and we appreciate y'all. You've been listening to uh, Brittany Harris, uh, VP of Learning and Innovation and all things freedom and liberation. What's up? Um, At the Winners Group. (laughs) And um, (laughs) you make sure you check us out um, at www.living-corporate. Please say the dash. Dot com. Livingcorporate.co, livingcorporate.us, livingcorporate.net, livingcorporate.org. Okay? We have all the living corporates at livingcorporate.com, so don't go there, because you're going to go there, and you're going to see some corporate apartment website and you're gonna get upset with me so i'm telling you <laughs> living dash corporate please say the dash dot com or living corporate dot anything but dot com okay make sure you check us out on instagram at living corporate make sure you check us on twitter at living corp underscore pod until next time peace living corporate is a podcast by living corporate llc our logo was designed by david dawkins Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson.
Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.